I think it is safe to say that there are very few passions more common to human beings or indeed to almost any species we could name as the desire to preserve oneself, to protect oneself, to ensure the continuation and comfort of oneself. This, of course, is why we buy umbrellas. This is why we seek shelter in the storm. This is why some people carry a gun. It's why people pay for security systems of one kind or another. There is almost nothing in us, in any of us, that likes the idea of pain. We do all that we can, naturally speaking, to avoid discomfort and inconvenience. We run from the things that might risk danger and death from us. This is one of the things that binds us all together. In fact, even the atheist will cry out in a moment of threat or worry, Oh Lord God, save me. We don't want to risk conditions where we can't be protected. This is why I think when we occasionally run across someone for whom this instinct of self-preservation is not the primary instinct, is not the supreme mandate of their life, why when we meet someone like this it is a little bit disconcerting, or at least it can be confusing at times. We wonder why they're not doing more to protect themselves. We almost don't know what to make of such a person. We think maybe there's actually something wrong with this kind of person, and this is the premise, this is the context for one of the Oscar-winning films of this past year, the movie Hacksaw Ridge. For those of you who may have missed this film, it is the story of Desmond Doss, the true story of a young Virginian named Desmond Doss, who is in a way an individual insignificant to look at, yet who plays a crucial role in the Battle of Okinawa in World War II. It, very important to this particular story is the fact that Doss does not need to get involved or to subject himself to the risks that he ultimately does. He has a natural deferment from military service. He's a naval shipyard worker. He does not have to put himself in harm's way. He's already serving his country. Furthermore, Doss, as we Learn through the movie making is part of a wonderful home circle. He is part of a marvelous circle of love that no one would want to leave, much less to enter into harsh circumstances. And when you look at this young man, you're struck by the fact that there is also nothing about his physical appearance that really you would think belongs in battle. He is like the scrawniest kid in your school gym class. He is like the kid for whom even the clothes won't fit. He's so thin and vulnerable and wispy, and yet this thin, tender shoot of a man makes the decision, when he doesn't have to, to enlist. He makes the choice to enlist as a combat medic, no less. And this is even more puzzling still, because it turns out that Desmond Doss is a Seventh-day Adventist, which means that, religiously speaking, he is committed to nonviolence and therefore unwilling to even carry a gun into battle. 
He is going to go into the hell of battle without a gun to protect himself. And people keep asking him, why would you do such a thing? And his answer keeps coming back, I want to save lives. I want to save lives. Well, to think that this movie is some kind of an argument for pacifism or against guns or some other type is to completely miss the point of the movie. Because Hacksaw Ridge is really about irony. It's about the unconventional, surprising, amazing way that goodness sometimes moves through this world. It's about how easy it is to miss, even, the most profound kind of goodness when it's staring us in the face, when it's right there in the barracks with us. And we watch as, as Desmond Doss is misunderstood, as he is maligned, as he's rejected by the people who meet him. In fact, we see him persecuted. We see him beaten up, bloodied by the very soldiers to whom he was so completely committed that he had enlisted to be their aid in time of injury. We watch these things happen to him. They call him a coward. They name him a rule breaker. They consider him a threat to them and want him out. Get him away, they say. But the young man stays. True story. He makes the decision to stay. Well, later on in one of the most infamous battles of Okinawa, we see the American troops landing on the beach. We uh, see a scene. It might be out of Saving Private Ryan. It is like something out of the D-Day invasion. They, it's a shell-shocked beach, and the American soldiers are just coming ashore, desperately terrified with the world blowing up around them, and somehow somebody manages to get up the cliffside and to put in stakes and to lower down a cargo net, and now we watch as... Dozens and dozens of soldiers scramble up the net like ants over onto the top of the ridge. And you think, oh, good, they're safe for a moment. No, it's worse there. It's worse there. And they suddenly come under the withering attack of an enemy that's been waiting for them, that is dug in and fortified and unleashes terror and death upon them. They rain death down upon them from these fortified bunkers. They spring up like banshees from trenches and holes in the ground. It's like the worst video game you've ever tried to play, only the zombies keep coming at you. And there's no way you're going to beat them. And this is what it's like. This is not just a movie. This is what it was like for those soldiers and that young man, Desmond Doss, well, as the terror and the blood and the death just is everywhere, night begins to fall and the casualties having mounted so severely, the, the American soldiers retreat down the cliffside again. They go back down that cargo net and they go off down the beach to at least a relative moment of safety to lick their wounds, to live to fight another day. And none of the departing troops seems to notice that one of their number, one of their soldiers, a very scrawny, 
medic of Virginia birth, stays behind on the ridge. Desmond Doss makes the choice to stay behind. And as the darkness gathers, Desmond goes to work. Crawling out through the mud into the face of bowel-melting danger, Desmond goes in search of wounded soldiers, of people with just a, a shred of life still left in them. Whether they be American or Japanese is not of particular concern to him. He's just looking to try and save lives. He tends to their injuries, even though he gets wounded himself. He uses his body to cover them and shield them from further harm in various moments. For hour after hour after hour, Desmond drags or carries people on his ravaged shoulders, uh, people who could not possibly do this for themselves, who could not possibly save themselves, and he lowers them down through bleeding hands, down a rope, burning up his hands, down the cliffside to safety. And all that long night, he prays. And he says this prayer out loud. Please, Lord, help me get one more. Help me get one more. And one by one by one, in a continual, continual act of surrender and a, a repetitive act of giving up his own life, in a sense, for the sake of others, Doss saves the lives of 75 people who would not have lived and gone on to joy and gone on to laughter had Desmond Doss not been willing to go up and stay up on that ridge. You're putting it together, aren't you? You know why we're here tonight. You know for whom we've come tonight. Long ago, another man enlisted himself in a much larger struggle. He chose not to arm himself, though he was a being of staggering power, he chose to wage war by unconventional means. And like Desmond Doss, he was not a muscular hero. The Bible says that he had no beauty or majesty to attract people to him. He was not the kind of person that would be a popular figure on first glance. He was Therefore, despised, and he was rejected by the very people he had come to serve. And they made him suffer because he did not fit in to their way of seeing life. And they made him hurt and feel great pain. But the irony was, he was the greatest life and the greatest love that any of them would ever get the chance to even be near. He was 
an extraordinary being. And yet they turned their faces from him, the Bible says, and they held him in low esteem. He could very easily, justifiably, have lashed back at them with a power more terrifying than anything that they had ever seen. But Jesus bore the pain, he bore the suffering that should have been theirs. For their sin-sick, blinded madness, he just kept taking it. He just kept absorbing it. And one Friday at a particularly decisive moment in the Great War, they, they took him up along with them to the top of a ridge outside of Jerusalem. And at that place, up on that ridge, an extraordinary hellish battle was being raged, being waged and raging, and they took him there. He actually chose to go there, and in that place, they crucified him. They crucified him. They crucified him. They drove iron spikes through those hands that had healed people. They drove the nail through the feet that had walked so many miles to bring good news to people. And, and they left him there under evil's withering attack to die. Where, where were his comrades? Where were his brothers in arms? They had retreated. Who could blame them? Right? Self-protection took over. They went back down the ropes, down the beach. They left him there alone on the ridge. Jesus could have left the ridge himself. He, he had the ultimate deferment, if you think about it. He, his righteousness, what he had already done in creation in forgiving and sustaining humanity over all of those centuries, if anybody deserved an opportunity to opt out of this moment in the great battle, it was Jesus. It was the Son. He had done his time, his tour, but he stayed on the ridge. He could have stopped what was being done to him also. With the very blink of an eye, he could have incinerated them all. He could have done this. But he didn't. He could have transported himself back into the circle of perfect love from which he'd come. But he did not. And the irony is that, that he who had every justification and every capacity to self-protect, to self-secure, to save himself, chose to stay on the ridge to save others. Jesus said, no one takes my life from me, but I, I give up my life. I'm giving it up of my own accord. And as darkness fell over Calvary and the full penalty and weight of human sin was laid upon him, Jesus stayed there on the cross. No retreat. 
no retreat. And I imagine him gazing out from that place of such unbelievable agony. I don't even want to let my mind go there, but I imagine him staring out across that cosmic battlefield at all of those faces of the people in the crowd there jeering at him and beyond those faces to all of the people in the holy city of Jerusalem who had not bothered to even come out that day and to all of those people across the centuries and down through the ages who he loved so much whom he longed to reach and who were unable to save themselves, who had dug for themselves a trench of sin so deep it felt like a groove to them. It felt like a comfy bed to them. He saw all these people, these faces of people, slowly growing accustomed to the constant conflict and the carnage of a world that is at war and will always be at war until we come home to the only one who can give us peace, and yet who don't know it, and who become so insensitive to it, they just click the channel changer again and walk on by. But I hear him. I hear him whispering in the darkness. I hear him saying, Father, Father, for my sake, forgive them. For they know not what they're doing. Please, Lord, help me get one more of them. And then I see Jesus, and he's taking me, and he's taking you in those bleeding hands of his, and he's He's lowering us out of harm's way. He's lifting and carrying us on that ravaged back of his and lowering us down the cliffside. And every time I see this Good Friday movie, and it's hard to even watch it sometimes, but every time I see it, I get a little bit more. I understand just a bit more deeply what the Bible means when it says that he was pierced for our transgressions. And he was crushed for our iniquities, and the punishment that brought us peace with God was on him and by his wounds, by his wounds. We're healed. We're forgiven. We're allowed to live, to rediscover the purpose for which we were made. I get it just a little bit more when I watch the movie. How about you? Do you get it? What he did for you and for me? It's hard to, it's hard to get this. I understand that. It's just so hard to take in. N.T. Wright, a wonderful British theologian, describes hearing an esteemed Anglican archbishop recount a story one day of three pretty hardened teenage boys. They had gone to their local priest. They were going to 
do a little prank. They were there ostensibly to confess their sins, but in truth, the boys thought this whole forgiveness of sin thing was kind of a joke. And so they had made up a really creative list of offenses, of terrible grievances. And they went in there and they recited this confession to the priest. Well, the, the, the priest was on to the roost almost immediately. He let the first two, however, get through their pretend list of outrageous sins as they snickered their way along and then ran out laughing. But when the third boy finished his list of confessions, he said to him, okay, okay, you've confessed now, but now I want you to repent I want you to do something to help turn your life in a new direction. And he said, for your penance, I want you to, to, to go down the, the aisle of the church. I want you to go to that, that place where you see the figure of Jesus hanging on the cross. And I want you to look up into his face. And I want you to say to him, you did this all for me. And I don't care very much. And I want you to say that three times. Well, the boy is sheepish, and he thinks about running, but he doesn't. He stays behind, and he goes down the aisle, and he stands in front of the figure of Jesus, and he looks up into the face. And he says, you did all of that for me, but I don't care very much. And then he bit his lip, and he and he looked up again and he said, you did all of that for me. And I don't care very much. And he never got to saying it a third time. Because he was sobbing. And he had sunk to his knees in the middle of that church. The archbishop telling this story to Tom Wright said, Tom, do, do you know why I know the details of this story so very well? And Wright said, no. And the archbishop said, because I was the third kid. I just didn't get it until I got it. He said, there's something about the cross. There's something about Jesus actually dying there. Jesus dying there for us, which leaps over all of the theoretical discussions, over all of the possibilities of how we might explain it this way or that way, and it just grasps us. And when we are grasped by it, somehow we have a sense that what is grasping us is the love of God. The love of God reaching out for us. The irony of that And I hope, this is just me speaking here, but I just hope that you 
feel those hands grasping you tonight. And I hope that it's not even so much guilt as the wonder of love that touches you and opens you up to giving up more of who you are for the sake of God and for the sake of others. Jesus said, greater love has no one than this. Then to give up one's life, to give up the drive for self-preservation, to go up and stay on that ridge, to lay down one's life, to give it all up for just one more. For just one precious person more. Please pray with me. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you that you are you and that we are that one. Amen.